So this morning we're going to be hearing um, from Nigel on Isaiah 9. Um, but before we do, I'm going to read it out. So Isaiah is found in the Old Testament, and you can actually see it um, also on your um, handouts that should have been on your seats this morning. So it's Isaiah chapter 9, um, verses uh, 1 to 7. So it reads, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Nebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honour Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on, his, on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I'm just going to pray for us and then Nigel will come. Father, thank you so much for these wonderful words. Lord, it's just incredible to think they were written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Thank you so much for Nigel. Thank you for the, the, the work he's put in. Lord, I pray you'd use him this morning. And please prepare our hearts and our minds for what he has to say to us. Amen. There's somebody in our house who hates darkness. It's not a, a dislike. It is a hatred of darkness. They um, have various strategies for coping with darkness. One includes a blanket. A blanket that is uh, sodden with um, spit over, over recent years, but it's very precious to this person. And so they hold on to it and it helps them to overcome their fear of darkness. Uh, another strategy is that they refuse to go into any room that is dark unless they turn the lights on. So that's another strategy that they've got. Another one is just uh, ensuring that the hall light is always on at bedtime. And this is done through shouting, uh, getting your parents' attention. This is done through, uh, so it's not Joe or I who are afraid of the dark. Um, this is done through tugging at a trouser leg to say, don't forget, please turn the light on. They just hate darkness so much. The great news about Christmas is that it's a time of year when there's a lot of lights that are on. Think about how many lights are on in your house. I'm not talking your, about your electricity bill at this point. But at Christmas time, the Christmas tree goes up and the lights go on. At Christmas time, you have extra lights in the hallway, perhaps. At Christmas time, you have extra lights um, in terms of decoration. And that's just on the inside of your house, let alone the latest trend of recent years, which is to plaster. You don't put the odd subtle one on. You plaster the outside of your house liberally, not with pebble dash, but with its equivalent of lighting. And the only people who are happy are NPower and uh, B&Q, because you want to buy all your stuff from them. There's lights on the inside of your house, there's lights on the outside of your house, and all the time it is dispelling darkness. 
which if you're afraid of darkness is a really, really good thing. This passage teaches us a lot about darkness, the reality of darkness and light and the darkness. This passage could be used as a metaphor for all of our life, the reality of darkness that is not a remote, it's not just part of a, a calendar or part of the time of the day. There is a darkness, says Isaiah, to our human experience. It's described in verse 1 and 2. But this passage describes to us the darkness that is a reality in our experience, but also it shows us how to handle the dark. It doesn't matter if you're 5 or if you're 55, dare I say. There is a, a reality in the human heart that we do not like darkness. One is a, a metaphor for the spiritual reality of the other. So let's look at this passage in a few ways. One is how to handle the dark. It teaches us how to handle the dark. The second thing is it tells us how to open a gift, because Christmas is about gifts. It's about light and darkness and about a son who was born in history. Let's look at the first few verses. Point number one, Christmas is about how to handle the dark. Christmas is about how to handle the dark. Look at uh, how many references there are in verses one and two just to the word darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress, verse one. Verse two, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. Light has dawned. We need to get our bearings here. This is a book that's written in about 750 BC. If you turn back to chapter 8, if you've got a Bible, if you scroll back on your phone a little bit, you can see that God is about to issue a terrifying judgment on his people. They have rebelled against him. They have said, we don't want to live under your loving rule. We don't want anything to do with you. And so God's justice will be meted out on his people. Not in a capricious way, but in a just and righteous manner. And in chapter 8, verse 21, it shows us the context of these famous Christmas verses. It says, verse 21, they will pass through the land. They will, be, they will roam through the land, excuse me, in the NIV. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look towards the earth. What's happening is in Israel there is famine, there is psychological issues, there is sociological issues, there is uh, not a love for God's word or his personhood, and so God's justice is about to be meted out on his people. God's people are looking everywhere apart from to him for help. It says down in verse 19, they're looking to the intellectuals of their society, they're looking to people such as mediums and spiritualists and, and diviners, how can we overcome this problem? Where would our help come from? They're looking to everybody apart from God because they're struggling, they're afraid of the darkness that's going to become a reality on their earth. It's the context of these famous sentences. And in the midst of hopelessness, in the midst of oppressive darkness, in the midst of spiritual warfare that's happening, in the midst of a military campaign that's about to begin as God uses the might of Assyria to uh, administer his justice on his people, chapter 9 comes. And chapter 9 says, in the midst of darkness there is hope. In the midst of darkness and oppression there is light. And it's all about a child. Nevertheless, chapter 9 verse 1, but... Nevertheless, in this darkness, in these issues that you brought upon yourselves, amidst the terrifying reality of military forces coming upon your land, there will be, in the future, a child of hope and a child of promise. In the midst of darkness, there's light. 
Look at verse 1. Now, why is the word gloom, distress, or the word fear used? What are they afraid of from verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9? It's actually the fear of death. Death that shrouds and shadows every culture. It says, verse 2, the people walking in darkness. It doesn't tell you what the darkness is. It just says darkness. So is it they're afraid of night time? It's more than that. The Hebrew parallelism is in verse 1 and in verse 2. It says the same thing in two different ways. Verse 2, on those living in the land of the shadow of death. Literally, it says, in death darkness. What are they afraid of? It's the, it's the shadow of death. Another way to put it is this. Death casts a huge shadow over all of human experience. You say, well, thanks a lot. It's Christmas. Where's some joy in that? I'm just saying what the passage says. Death casts a shadow. There's a darkness to the human experience that this passage speaks of and that we've all experienced as well. Someone wrote, death is the greatest struggle we have with living life. It's the great leveller that one out of one people die. And some of us may say, hang on, wait a minute. This is, uh, uh, you know, just close to the 8th century BC. Loads of people died there. Now we have medical advances. We have more technology. We don't struggle with death as much as we used to. Well, that's only partially true. Uh, A few weeks ago, I was reading a biography of an American in the 17th century. And he uh, outlived both of his wives... Uh, ladies, you'll be glad that he had two wives. I want to tell you the next fact. He had 15 children, but that was two women. Um, but this poor man buried both of his wives and 13 out of his 15 children. In the 17th century, death was everywhere. When somebody uh, died, it was immediate. It wasn't something that was sanitised like in the modern world. It was a, a pressing reality of every human experience and human heart and most homes. In the 17th century, half of the children that were born would not grow to be adults. Death was everywhere. So this is not an 8th century BC reality, this is a 17th century reality as well. In the modern world, it's still a reality that we each face, uh, face. One out of one people die. But we do our best to sanitise it, don't we? We do our best to um, drive away death from our experience because we want to eat drink and be merry. We live in a technological society, so there are lots of advances of beautifying death, of uh, separating death from every human uh, home and heart, but the reality is still there. We still live in its shadow, as the people did in verses 1 and into verse 2 of Isaiah 9. There's an interesting quote I found this week from an American observer and writer called Ernest Becker. It's a 42-year-old quote. I know that because I was born in 1975. But Ernest Becker wrote a very interesting book called The Denial of Death. And in it, he wrote something like this. It's a paraphrase. He says, In all civilizations, sex, money, and politics have been important. But only in the Western civilization of our time are sex, money, and power all important. There has never been a culture in which sex and romance and physical beauty, this is 40 years old, are as absolutely obsessed upon as they are in our culture. Why? It's a reality of the shadow of death. 
Becker is saying, this is 40 years old and it's still true, I'm convinced. We are the first culture who's so convinced that uh, all of our significance must be found in this life. We want to ignore the pressing reality of the next. If you believe that you can cram all your significance, he says, and all of your happiness into this life, it makes this life so much more important than the next because your significance has to be crammed into everything you do now. So your work, your relationships become all-consuming. Your family becomes, rather than a good thing, it can become a God thing because you want to have your significance crammed into this life and this experience now. This life is all there is, says the modern world. And the only way that we will feel significant and happy is if this life is great. That's why we struggle so much with suffering and difficulty. But we live under the shadow of death. There's another man, his name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a writer, he was a Lutheran pastor, he was a German man at the time of the uh, Second World War. And he was overseas as Hitler rose to power and was about to be elected. Ernest Becker um, writes at the same time about Bonhoeffer that he was tempted to not go back to Germany. Luther was tempted to stay away in the safety of New York where he was teaching, where he was educating, lecturing. But Hitler was on the rise and he says, out of conviction, I need to go back to Germany and object to everything that is happening. His friends say, don't go back. If you go back, you will lose your life. But Becker writes that actually, actually it was so important that he went back because although he lost his life, he resisted, he protested, he was arrested and he was executed. He was a conscientious objector, you could say. And Becker records that he wrote something very interesting about death and the attitude to the shadow of death that we all face. Bonhoeffer wrote, death is the supreme festival on the road to freedom. The supreme festival on the road to freedom. What's Bonhoeffer trying to say? That we all face the reality of death, the shadow that we struggle with. And yet Bonhoeffer can see something of Isaiah 9 when he says, a light has dawned in my heart. A light has dawned in my heart, in my human experience, so I don't need to be afraid of death anymore. I don't need to be afraid of the dark anymore. I don't need to be afraid of the shadow anymore because a light has dawned in my heart. And that's why Bonhoeffer could return to Germany and even though he lost his life, a light had dawned in his heart. Darkness was all around him, militarily in Germany, politically, socially. There was darkness, there was oppression, and yet... In Bonhoeffer's heart, he could look death in the face because light had dawned in his heart. It's the message of Isaiah chapter 9. There was darkness all around him. He was in the shadow of the fear of death, but he believed and trusted Jesus. He knew that his sins were forgiven, not in part, but in whole. And so he could look death in the face. He knew that Jesus went to the cross to pay the justice that we all deserve, and he could look death in the face. We don't have to be afraid of darkness anymore, says Isaiah chapter 9. Bonhoeffer wasn't afraid of death. He wasn't afraid of anything. But why? Why wasn't he afraid? Why wasn't he pursuing comfort? Why wasn't he trying to live life now in the safety of New York? Why did he have to return to Germany? Because he could see that a light had dawned in his heart. He knew Jesus Christ personally. So he wasn't living for comfort in New York. He wasn't living for uh, academic aplomb in New York. He wasn't living for any relationships that he may or may not have had. Why not? He lived in this dark world, in the shadow of death, 
but a light had dawned in his heart. Why? Because secondarily, Christmas is about how to open a gift. If it teaches us how to live in the darkness, the light has dawned. Christmas tells us how to open a gift so that we can not enjoy the darkness, but so that we can live in the midst of it. The rest of uh, this passage beyond verse 2 explains about this light that dawned in Boniface's heart and experience. It, it explains to us how to receive the gift that ultimately is Jesus. The, uh, you may have noticed it, but the, the text speaks of merit, what we can achieve ourselves, versus gift, which is a grace of God. Merit against grace. What do I mean? Look at verse 4. Verse 4, it says, For as in the day of Midian's defeat. That's describing a time in the life of Gideon. And you can read of it in Judges chapter 7, where God wonderfully and graciously delivered his people from the might of the Midian army. And he did it in the most extraordinary way, where the army got together and he said, no, that's too many, you need to go back. All, all the men go back who do this and that. And he whittled a huge military force down to 300 people so that God would get all the glory. And this is recorded by Isaiah to say, this light that is dawning in the world, it's not about your merit, it's not about what you do, it's a gift. And it's a person. Verse 4, it's the first example of the language of merit. Remember Gideon? He didn't succeed himself. Look at verse 5. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. What does that mean? And why is it there? This is Isaiah saying, this deliverance that this son, this child of promise that's going to bring, it's not going to be a military one. So you can get all your military stuff and you can burn the lot of it because this is not a military campaign. This is not going to happen by your effort and your strength and your ability with a sword or with a shield or with a spear. Burn the lot of it because this is not about your merit. It is not about your strength and your might. You can burn it all. Why? Because this language is preparing us from verse 4 and verse 5. This is not about merit. It's about gift and it's about grace. Verse 6. Notice the name of the child, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government upon his shoulders, and so on. His name will be wonderful counsellor, mighty God. Here's the contrast. You've thought about Gideon and his might. We've thought about military might and armour. No, that's replaced with not merit, but grace and a gift of a child. The mighty God was born, and he was born in history. Jesus Christ came into the world. He came physically. He came literally. He came historically. It's about grace. In every other religion, there are lots of miracles. You read the writings of Buddha or Muhammad or Confucius. It's, it's a great read. It's fictional. It's not historical. And there's lots of miracles and lots of uh, stories that are included in them. It's lots of things that happen in their lives and in their experience. And there are value if you're going to follow those religious teachers because they tell you what you need to do. You need to follow what Muhammad said. You need to keep the teachings of Confucius and Buddha. They show and they example how you are to live. It's about merit. But the Bible is not a story that happened in terms of make-believe. This is historical truth. 
This is rooted not above history. Jesus, when he was born, doesn't float above the ground. He's born in a stable. He enters into the womb of a virgin, born in earth, uh, cared for by uh, an inexperienced young couple. He struggles with everything a human does, and yet without sin. And if you disprove the incarnation, then Christianity will fall on its face. That's why Christians so celebrate Jesus' birth, his death, his resurrection at Easter. And the difference between Christianity and the other religions of the world is, this is historical truth. And why the incarnation is so important is, every founder of every other religion says, you need to do what I say. You need to listen to my teaching. You need to uh, seek the experiences that I enjoyed. But Christianity is different. It doesn't say, here is how you must live. It does not say, here is how you are saved. Christianity is completely the opposite. Christianity says, this is not of merit, this is of grace. Verse 6, what do I mean? Unto us a child is earned. No, unto us a child is given. For us a child is given. For us a child is born. This is grace, not merit. Jesus does not say, this is what you must do. This is teaching you must follow. This is an experience you must seek after. This is a gift. The child is born for us. He is living. He's living for us. He is dying. He's dying for us. Jesus Christ came as our substitute. He's not saying, here's how you live. Here's a path that you've got to follow. Here are teachings that you must um, adhere to. Jesus Christ says, I am coming to live a life that you couldn't live and that you'll never be able to live. I'm coming to die a death that your sins deserve as the justice of my Father is meted out on me so it won't be meted out on you. It's the message of Christmas and the Easter coming together. Every other teacher says, do this and it will be well. Do this and you will be saved. But this verse, verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This tells us something completely different. You are saved by what the Saviour did, not by what you do. It's different from every other religion in the world, friends. That makes Christmas so important to the Christian faith. It does not say, here's a beautiful story that will warm your heart. It may warm your heart, but it's more than a story. It's history, and it's true, and it's substitutionary. That's why it's beautiful. That's why it's a heartwarming story, because it's true. Because it's true. If it's not true, if Jesus did float above the ground, if it is a set of uh, sentimental stories and that alone, it's not beautiful, it's crushing. It's not beautiful, it's depressing ultimately. Because the standard of the law is so high, no one will ever be able to keep it. And so Jesus Christ came. And he fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law. And he lived a perfect life. And he died a substitutionary death for you and for me. That's what we celebrate around the table. And therefore Christmas is about opening a gift. It's, it's how to live in the darkness. It's, it's how to open a gift. And, and lastly, if you do get a gift, you need to know how to open it. So let's think about three things about the gift itself. We've thought about verse 1 and 2, how you live in the darkness we thought about uh, how to open the gift itself, and now I just want us to think very quickly about three things. What's in the box? What's in the gift? And I want us to look at verse 6 and 7, all too superficially as a whole sermon series here, but this 
it's going to be five minutes, not a series. There are two adults in our home. One of us is very different from the other. I love surprises at Christmas. I, I ruined my surprise this week because my slippers that are four years old have worn out. They made a mess on the floor. So I was given one of my Christmas presents this week. Can you guess what it is? It's new slippers. But there's another adult in our home and uh, to get what she wants at Christmas, knowing my <laughs> insensitivity, um, there is a list provided for me. Uh, and the list is provided with suggestions that can be purchased at great cost. And if those are purchased, then Christmas goes well for me. That's how it works. <laughs> this is not grace, this is merit. Oh, no, I'm kidding. But you get the point. Some of us love surprises, some of us don't, but we need to know how to open the gift. Kids are a great uh, example to us, aren't they? When they have uh, bare hands on Christmas morning, when they want to rip open a parcel or a they just do it with such exuberance. We're busy tidying up the wrappers and so on and so forth. But, but here are four wonderful names of the baby who is to be born. We've already mentioned one of them, uh, Mighty God. But here are three other of the names of this baby that tell us the contents of the gift, that tells us three more things about Jesus. First of all, if you understand the gift of Christmas, it helps you to live in the darkness. And this is how. It helps you to become someone, listen carefully, who is deeply mystical. What do I mean by that? Someone who is deeply mystical. If you understand this gift of who this child is, it enables you to live in the darkness as someone who is deeply mystical. If you take this in, it makes you deeply mystical. Where did I get that from? Verse 6. This child to be born is the everlasting father. He's the everlasting father. Why does Isaiah use the title of Jesus, father? He's just explained that this baby to be born, who is Jesus, is the king of the whole universe and the king of the whole world. He's not just Israel's king. He's the king of the cosmos. And yet another one of his titles, verse 6, is that Jesus will be the wonderful counselor and also the everlasting father. Why father? How can a king who is the king of the cosmos be a father as well? Why does he use that word? The gift of Christmas, the gift that we need to receive, is not in a, a box, it's in a person who came and was born in a crib, in a stable. <coughs> and that shows us that the everlasting father, God wanted to come close. God desires intimacy with me and with you. That's why Jesus came from heaven to earth. God doesn't just want to be a concept to you. He wants to be a person to you. He wants to be your father. And that's why he came close at Christmas. Put it this way. Every other religion gives you God as a concept. Every other religion gives you God as a concept who came to earth to be with you. But Christianity says, here is God who takes you by the hand because he wants a relationship with you. Here is God when he came to earth. He takes the hand, not just of you metaphorically, but he took the hand of a little girl who was asleep, who had died, and said, little girl, get up. There's no other God like that. Here is a God who cries out on the cross when he pays for your sins and for mine to ruin the brokenness of the world, to repair it, to bring it back together again. He says and cries out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Here is a God who's come close. No other God like that. Here is a God who so desires to please his Father, to honour him, to glorify him, but he wants you. He came close and he said, 
I'm going to move heaven and earth to get to you. There's no other God like that. And Christmas enables people, when we see the gospel, which is the ultimate gift that we can ever receive, it makes us people who are deeply mystical. You'll never fully understand this, how the king of the cosmos became so small. And he did it because he's the everlasting father and he can be your father too. Here's the second part of the gift. Christmas makes you deeply mystical, but also happily material. Happily material. Now, I do not mean materialistic. I wouldn't say that. But look at this passage, verse 6. Notice that the word peace comes up in verse 6 and verse 7. He's not just the mighty God. He's not just the everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace, verse 6. That's the first time. And then it says, verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. This word peace, the Hebrew word peace is shalom, it's, it's wholeness, it's absolute wholeness, it's complete flourishing, it's not waving a white flag, it's, it's doing good to all, it's returning creation to the way that it was always intended to be, the way it was and the way it will be before sin entered the world. So this idea of peace, everlasting peace, being a prince of peace, is God sending his son to bring peace back to the world, but that will only be through terrible suffering for himself through the cross. Where there's death, there will be life. Where there's hunger, there will be fullness of stomach. Where there's alienation from God, there will be reconciliation. All through the Prince of Peace. But this Prince of Peace does not remain in the cosmos. He doesn't remain in the heavenly realms. He came from heaven to earth. That means we can be happily material people. That means that we can have a good, healthy understanding of the world. It's not the way it was. It's not the way it will be but we want to be engaged with the poor. We want to be engaged with those who are suffering. We don't just, don't just want to pray for people. We want to get into their messy lives because we have messy lives too, and we want to help. Because Christ has helped us, we want to help other people. That's why we want to be a church of word, of community, and of mission. We want to go out. We want to go out more in 2017 than we have in 2016. Why? Because we're a people who are deeply mystical. We try and understand the truth of the gospel. But also we're happily material. We have an understanding of the world. It's not the way it was and it's not the way it will be. It's sin-stained, but Christ has come to redeem the world. Thirdly, the third part of the gift. At Christmas, you're free to be, you're free to be emotional. You're free to be emotional. I don't mean tears here, but look at verse 7. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And verse 7 describes God's kingdom. He is the wonderful counsellor. He is the counsellor who brings wonder. He's the counsellor who brings joy and peace. There's a thing about Christmas trees. You know when you chop them off, if it's a real one, they are great, but they always shed loads and loads of needles. It's really irritating, which is why I have, being a kind of a type A person, I love fake trees, and I'm unashamed about that. But real trees throughout the year, how do real trees keep going? When it's a drought, how do real trees keep going? It's because of their roots. Their roots go out and they go deep. The older the tree, the deeper and bigger the root ball and all that stuff. They go out searching for water that is subterranean. It's under the ground. And that's they suck up water and nourishment and that's how they keep growing. Just imagine this wonderful counsellor is in your life. Jesus is in your life. Personally, intimately, emotionally. You have a resource, subterranean, 
under your skin, in your heart. He's called the Holy Spirit who shows Jesus' majesty and loveliness and power to you every single day through the darkness of life, through the shadow of death that we will walk. Why is Jesus described as the wonderful counsellor? Because he's in your hearts by his Spirit, showing God's sufficiency and greatness, the extent of his promises, the, the depth of his love, the beauty of his character to you. And that means that you have a subterranean resource, just like a tree looking for water and nourishment, so that now as you live in the shadow of death, now as you face suffering, now as you face confusion tomorrow or this week, now as you live in a broken world, you are a deeply emotional person because God is in your heart. It's a timeless truth. You don't fill up your resources by working hard, by um, thinking happy thoughts, by reading self-help books. You have God in your midst, God in your hearts. And that's all the resource you need. That means you're not shaped by how people think about you. That means that you, you still struggle with that, but it doesn't define you. You can work and you can work hard, but it's not your justification. You can seek to love and serve people. But if they make your life difficult, you may be disappointed, but it won't crush you. Why? Because you are someone who is deeply mystical. That's what Christmas, the gospel, brings to us. It means you're happily material. You understand the world in a new way because God has come to redeem the world in his son. You're someone who's free to be emotional because you have the wonderful counsellor, verse 6, in your heart. And that means you don't need to be afraid of the darkness anymore. You can live in this world with hope-filled confidence because of Jesus and because of this baby and because of this son. Friends, if you receive Christ in your heart, if you bow to his authority, if you say sorry for the way you've lived, even this week, you don't need to be afraid of the dark anymore, whether you're 5 or 55 or 75. You don't need to be afraid of the dark anymore. Why? Because chapter 9 verse 1 says, or verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of the gospel, the greatest gift. Thank you for the person of your son, King Jesus. Thank you that you're not indifferent to suffering, but you are the only God who's come close. Rather than that just being truth upon a page, please, would that reality come into our lives so that we would understand the world in which you've placed us in a new way. It'd help us to love Jesus in a more intimate way. And you'd also help us to keep struggling to understand how God and sinners are reconciled. It is a deep mystery. But we thank you so much for Jesus, who we remember now as we gather around your table. Amen.